You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastelasen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing. And of course, where we also try to take some of your questions. But today, we're going to deviate a bit from our usual format because we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest, namely Rob Carver, who couldn't have come at a better time to discuss the pros and cons of rules-based investing. So let me start by saying, welcome back to the show, Rob. It's been a while. It has been. I think it's been about four years. So yeah, it's really, yeah, really yeah, good you. to be back on. Definitely. Yeah, great great to have you. And of course, Moritz, good afternoon to you. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Good afternoon, Niels. Hello, Rob. Great to have you with us today. Thanks, Moritz. Now, we have a lot of things to talk to you about, Rob, but since we usually do a quick run-through of the week in terms of what took place uh, inside uh, the trend-following portfolios that we work with, um, maybe I can suggest that you uh, grab an extra cup of coffee while Marge and I just do a quick run-through, and when we'll be straight back just talking uh, with you about... Um, you know, all things uh, systematic trading, I guess. So, uh, quick run through from me. I mean, of course, it was a historic week uh, that just came to an end in terms of market moves. Um, not seen since the financial crisis and some one-day moves not seen since the stock market crash in 1987. Um, despite a very strong finish on Wall Street yesterday, uh, US stocks still managed to finish down between 10 and 17%, depending on which index you look at for the week. German stocks finished down 17% for the week. Um, and um, during the worst moments of the week, many of the world's equity markets had given up multiple years of return in only about three weeks. So, uh, you know, but these weren't even the biggest moves of the week because it all started as energy, start, uh, energy took center stage on Monday when it recorded a drop of 30% at the open. It finished the week around 20% down uh, for the week, uh, so not as bad as we saw initially. And if that wasn't enough, typical safe havens like gold and U.S. Treasury also got sold towards the end of the week as investors were scrambling to raise cash. Um, the dollar did find some level of bid towards the end of the week after having been sold off as carry trades got unwound during the first part of the week. And of course, the big winner was... Uh, at least in terms of price increase, one of few markets that did go up in price, that was the VIX index. But before we move on uh, to you, Moritz, I just want to say one thing, which I'm not I'm not an expert. I want to admit uh, that straight uh, from the beginning here. But it's something that is not getting a lot of press, and I don't know if it's really important. Um, but this week, and I think it was Thursday, the Fed provided an unprecedented $500 billion in uh, the largest ever overnight lending program. Um, and usually, usually that is linked to some kind of bank or group of banks being in trouble. Um, just as a putting it into context, the discount program, as it was called, a window, as it was called back under the financial crisis in 2008, when Bear Stearns got in trouble, they provided $50 billion. So now we have a week where they just did 10 times Bear Stearns. I don't know what it means, but I think it's important. 
So with that happy news, Moritz, how was your week? <laughs> Very interesting week. What a week. I mean, you need to tell me when I when I should stop because I could speak, I could do solo speak for an hour about this past week. I mean, we had the oil market plunging, limit down on Monday. We've had the S&P limit up and down a couple of times this week. Uh, markets very volatile all over across the board. Um, I've lost 1.5% in my trend following portfolio. And I must say, I'm kind of happy with that. I'm very happy that, you know, I'm, I'm not just long equities, buy and hold, buy and hope. Um, I probably would have thrown in the towel. I mean, those moves, um, I'm sure a lot of people who are exposed to equities too much, they probably puked and, and they'll find it very, very stressful to hold on to that stuff. So, uh, Difficult week, um, but year to date, 16 basis points positive. That doesn't mean a thing. That's uh, that's kind of like a five second PL for us. Uh, that may change on on Monday, in a heartbeat. And lots of positions uh, that I exited off and new entries, mostly on the short side, that I took on this past week. Um, yeah, made money obviously from being short oil as we as we all did, but. The bonds didn't help this week. Uh, still long the bonds, pretty heavily long the bonds, but uh, they didn't provide the anti-correlation which they usually do during times like these. I mean, they did the week before, but they didn't do this week. And then um, kind of like flat on the equities now, some long still, some shorts. Um, Aussie dollar has been a great short this past week. Bitcoin. We have to mention Bitcoin, right? I said it like I, I have a couple of Bitcoin which I like hold spot Bitcoin. This is outside of my trend following portfolio, but I must say my my tummy is turning because I got an entry signal to short Bitcoin, Bitcoin futures, the CME Bitcoin futures, and um, so there you have it. Uh, this is probably going to be a roller coaster ride, and um, but look, it's it's the rule. Take the position appropriately sized. See what happens. So there we go. No, absolutely well done. Um, now, people might be surprised when I say that for us, this week was pretty uneventful. Uh, volatility was very small on a day-by-day -day basis, typically plus minus 1%. Uh, we made money this week, uh, a decent amount, not not spectacular, but we made, um, you know, a few percent. Um, and so, um, not that we're going to spend time on it now, we're going to get to Rob and, and talk about this, but this is some of the differences we've been talking about for for weeks or months or years on the podcast uh, when we debate, you know, how risk management can be done differently. Because in our case, uh, it's always done from a very statistical point of view on the whole portfolio. And in a situation like this, where you have lots of volatility and actually correlations increasing between markets. Um, this is where we become very defensive in our uh, positioning, uh, as well as uh, triggering some, some, you know, a lot of exits, uh, which we talked about last week um, in the uh, equity uh, part of the portfolio. So this week, a uh, good week, um, flattish on the year, uh, like you, Moritz. Um, but uh, you know, coming back from from a from a uh, from a down month in February, um, interesting markets that did well for us this week. Australian dollars, you mentioned uh, volatility. We have a small volatility component. Obviously, that was interesting to see how that coped, but it did well. Lean hogs, crude oil. So a lot of um, a lot of breath uh, to have these type of markets uh, provide a bit of uh, positivity in the portfolio. 
things that didn't do so well um, a little bit on the uh, on the equity side uh, of course um, 10 year Australian bonds didn't do so well for us uh, net gas gold um, but again overall um, pretty uneventful uh, if you can put it like that and and obviously uh, you know very little risk uh, overall in the portfolio. But enough about that. This is much more important, and that is to get to you, Rob, because, um, you know, it's been a few years as we talked about. You've been on the podcast, which, by the way, was a hugely educational conversation, as, as I recall it. So I highly recommend anyone listening to us today to go back and replay these episodes, which are the TTU series, uh, episode 89 and 90 um, but what is also interesting is that when we uh, had our conversation, one of the things we talked about was your first book, uh, Systematic Trading. And I even, I think, got you to read a part of the beginning because it all kind of takes uh, a beginning in terms of uh, you describing what took place back in early 2009 at the height of the financial crisis. And uh, it clearly illustrated, uh, you know, the difficult, uh, stressful periods in the markets and and how difficult it was for you to make good decisions. Uh, and I think last week or the last couple of weeks is, is easily at the same scale in terms of uncertainty in the market. So I would love to just for you to start out by telling a little bit about, you know, going back to 2009 and the challenges you faced back then and how that contrasts to the past week or two in terms of how you've dealt with it uh, and um, and and dealt with the volatility uh, you know from from that point of view yeah I mean it's interesting because a lot of people have been making comparisons between now and 2008 nine which you know is obvious because it's the last crisis that most of us can remember um, but this is quite a different crisis um, so in a kind of fancy language of economists, I think you could describe 2008 as an endogenous crisis. So the kind of stress came from within the system, the, the kind of financial system became over leveraged. And ultimately, that was always going to lead to its, its downfall. Um, and the, the actual um, way that things played out in the markets happened relatively slowly. I mean, we had the first kind of stress of the, um, you know, the, the hedge funds linked to Bear Stearns in kind of February 2007. And that was probably the first kind of indication that, that things were starting to crack. You know, and then we had bank runs in the UK later that year. Um, although, interestingly, if you look at the equity market, it kind of held its value fairly well until obviously mid-2008 when it, it did start to plunge. Um, but even then, you know, look at, looking at how the, you know, the equity market sold off in late 2008 and comparing it to what's happened over the last few weeks, the acceleration... Um, and the speed of the downturn that we've seen in the last few weeks has been phenomenally faster. Um, you know, we've we've there, there's, you know, I said to you guys before we started speaking that a few weeks ago I, I was on a, a skiing holiday in northern Italy, and everything was fine. Um, and I think the S and P probably hit a record high around that time. And now we are a few weeks later, and we've seen these these savage moves come almost out of nowhere. Um, so in many ways, it has been quite a different um, crisis because it's come from outside and it's affected the markets much more quickly and and uh, you know and the speed of the downturns has been has been much quicker um, that does mean that some of the things that that you kind of hope will happen in a crisis as a trend follower haven't necessarily happened 
Um, so, you know, you, you, in 2008, the sell-off was slow enough that, that, you know, most CTAs were able to get short equities and long bonds and, and therefore, you know, deliver very good returns in, in kind of Q3 and Q4 of, of 2008. Um, and, you know, listening to you guys just now, you're kind of like, well, we're kind of flat, you know, small down, you know, in my own kind of trend following portfolio, I'm small up. Um, it's not what you'd expect, which is this kind of quote unquote crisis alpha, right? It's not the, the big outsized, um, you know, negative correlation to equities that you'd hope to get this sort of insurance policy effect. Um, so, you know, it's all very well going back to 2008, but actually this does feel like something quite different. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, not to interrupt your flow here, but I would say, I mean, it's interesting what you bring up here, but to me, we're three weeks into the crisis. And actually when we go back and I look, if I look up at the two largest drawdowns in the MSCI World Index, uh, which was of course the dot-com bubble, uh, and and the uh, financial crisis, um, those two crises are, are are quite interesting, because if I look on on our side, our own performance, one of the crises we start making money straight away, uh, and this is on monthly data, right? Not daily data, but on monthly data, we start making money straight away. The other one, we um, it took us a few months before we started making the money from from when the equity market hit the high and and went into its drawdown. But we ended up making more money uh, at the end of the uh, uh, drawdown for the equity. So for me, the last three weeks is, yes, it's a crisis because of what's happened. But but this is just, I mean, if, if this is a real crisis, this is just the beginning. Meaning from a trend following point of view, I don't expect anyone, except for the short term guys, to have designed systems to make money from this three week period or two week period. It's for the next 18 months or so, we're going to show that non-correlation or negative correlation, ideally, if it continues. So I just want to put that in because I, I, I don't want to make it sound like that um, that we would be expected to make money when something like this happens. I don't think necessarily trend followers can do that uh, yeah. from a design point of view. I mean, that's exactly the point I was trying to make, yeah. I guess. Um, the the um, I, think, cause I think what you're going to see over the next few days is articles in the financial press saying, Oh my goodness! You know, CTAs, which are supposed to deliver this crisis alpha, haven't done that. You know, they're probably on on average the index is going to be flat for last week. Um, and I'm just I think we need to reinforce the point that there's a very good reason for that, which is the speed we've yeah. seen. Um, I did a couple of um, quick kind of back of the envelope exercises this morning before we we started. Uh, one was to use a very simple moving average crossover, um, 16 and 64 days on the S&P 500. Um, and that that crossover um, went kind of flat on I think um, something like March the third. Um, so you know before that it would have been long, um, and then this week it, yes it would have been short, but it only you know it's only just crossed over. So the the size of the position before we even talk about vol scaling, you know, mm. um, would have been very very modest. So um, you know most most people would not have been significantly short equities last week. Um, I would say based on that uh, and the other thing I did was just look at the um, performance of my own portfolio on a day-by-day -day mm -hmm. basis against the S&P 500 um, and it looked to me just just by eye this is not a quantitative exercise by any means but just by eye um, it looked like I went from having kind of a, a long beta to S&P 500 in other words on a day-by-day -day basis you know when the S&P 500 was making money so was I 
um, to having a, a, a sort of short a negative beta um, around the same time but the magnitude of of the beta was small so you know as things stand today I've, I'm I'm kind of net across my whole portfolio I've got a net negative exposure to the S&P 500 not necessarily because I have a short in the S&P 500 I don't as it happens I'm flat like like you said but you know the, the exposure overall kind of gives that effect um, but that's it's not a it's not a big short you know it's still quite modest and you're you're right if things continue to play out um, then I would expect that negative beta to increase and I would expect the crisis alpha to come in but but I think um, being flat last week isn't bad you know it's not a bad outcome to be honest no no, you know, no as, as trend no. followers we're always at the risk of the whipsaw right and just because of the speed that we just had maybe that whipsaw risk is pretty elevated these days. Uh, you know, I just mentioned the short Bitcoin. I mean, you're getting short Bitcoin below 5,000. And, uh, you know, maybe the thing's going to be trading at 10,000 by the end of next week. We don't know. Maybe equities will have a massive reversal. Um, but like you say, Niels, maybe it goes the other way and those trends continue and it, it does deteriorate from here. We we don't have that crystal ball, but the whipsaw risk is is definitely there and it's pretty high. Yeah, and also, you know, when you design portfolios, obviously we're going to get into portfolio construction uh, from the from from your uh, point of view, Rob. But but when you as an investor are trying to design a portfolio of CTAs, I mean, you don't want every one of your CTAs or trend followers to be the same, right? You want some of those short-term guys who would have done or should have done really well this week because it was their environment, and then you want some medium-term and maybe some long-term guys that will then carry the torch, so to speak, as the crisis or as the trends. Uh, continue um, and and where daily volatility may not you know be stopping you up and and whip throwing you so it's all about um, true in my opinion true diversification across you know different things of course from a portfolio level but within the CTA space different types of strategies and really work out what drives the performance of each uh, manager that you uh, engage with uh, so. Um, and and actually what just just to stay on that topic for 5 seconds more and that is i think one of the mistakes that people have made uh, in in recent past is that they look at the performance of trend followers and say oh they're all very highly correlated so they must be doing the same thing but a period like this will show you that no just because you're highly correlated doesn't mean your returns are correlated uh, they can be very very different um so there i mean this is actually a great time to learn uh, it's it's you know of you know I want to be respectful because I think a lot of people lost a lot of money in the last couple of weeks. I don't want to make it sound like we're smug and and we're you know happy that this happened, but it's just a learning experience um, that is very important for everyone to uh, internalize and study and and uh, as as the saying goes, I mean we 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 learn the best uh, from 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 the biggest challenges we face, and I think this for investors will be one of the biggest challenges that they have faced in a long time. And let's not forget one thing, and that is a lot of the people sitting on the trading floors today, many of them has never experienced the financial crisis. They have never seen volatility like we saw the last you know, few days. That also plays a, a factor uh, in all of this. So, but why don't we... We, I'm sure we'll come back to this week's events, but maybe from a from a, a you know big picture point of view, uh, you know I mentioned your first book, which we talked a lot about uh, in our first conversation many years ago, Rob. Um, you also wrote a book about 
uh, called Smart Portfolios. And uh, you start out with a quote um, from Harry Markowitz where it says, uh, I only have one piece of advice, uh, diversify. And if I had to offer a second piece of advice, it would be remember that the future will not necessarily be like the past. Therefore, you, we should diversify. So diversification, I would love to just dive into this. Um, talk to me about how you think about diversification. What does it really mean to you to be diversified? Because I think we all have our own different interpretations of, of what that is. I mean, the basic maths behind diversification is that obviously you're, you're trying to hold assets which are uncorrelated. Um, and that means that um, the average risk of your portfolio would be lower than it otherwise would be. Um, and um, the, the, the the nice thing then is that, that you know, as we're all people trading futures, um, we can leverage up um, to hit a, a given risk target uh, and basically earn that diversification in the form of extra returns, which is obviously what, what the investor ultimately wants. Um, now, there's a kind of a few issues with with the statement I've just made, and one one is that this idea that correlation is a good measure of of diversification, because um, correlation is a linear measure. Um, so it kind of assumes that assets always have the same relationship. So generally speaking, if if assets are negatively correlated, that means that all the time, if one asset goes down, the other one should go up, vice versa. Um, and you know we can kind of bring this to the present day because last week you know we we saw what tends to happen in a crisis which is that correlation patterns change and they change very quickly um so you know um for quite a long time now there's there's been a, a negative correlation between stocks and bonds um and last week um you know we we saw on some days at least that relationship breaking down and actually bonds um selling off when that that's you know what the not what the correlation would it would have expected and we don't really know why that happened I mean we can speculate about um, it could be a, just a general deleveraging it could be that a lot of people now are running risk parity funds which means that you know they have to deleverage their equities and their bonds at the same time it could be related to the rise of passive investing and now there are a lot more ETFs um, in the market um, we, we don't really know and, and uh, it's it's not necessarily a profitable activity to speculate as to why these correlations are breaking down it's just important that, that we need to, to know that they are. Um, so for me, at least, the lesson there is is that you've got to view diversification with, with a kind of as wide a view as possible. Um, it can't just be about having both uh, stocks and bonds long only in your portfolio um, because, yeah, probably 80% of the time, um, you know, that will be the right thing to do. They will be uh, negatively correlated or at least low positive correlation. And you will get a nice diversification benefit from that. Um, but, you know, I, I we've talked about uh, not being smug about people losing money. So I have got a long only bond and equity portfolio as well as a futures portfolio. And, you know, that did pretty badly last week. Um, <laughs> it certainly wasn't flat. Um, so, you know, that, that goes to show that this very limited view of diversification that a lot of people have, you really have to go beyond that. Um, so I like to think of diversification across a number of different axes. Um, and the first is sort of style. What style of investing you're doing? Um, so, you know, we're all, we're all, I guess, to one extent or another kind of trend followers. So that's a bucket that, that we kind of fit into. Um, and, um, you know, I think we're all probably big fans of trend following. But does that mean that we would advocate putting all of your money into that single style bucket? 
I, I, I certainly, from my perspective, know, and I'm sure you guys agree. Um, for most people, uh, trend following is something that they they add to their port existing portfolio because they like the the properties that it brings in terms of added diversification. But you know, there's there's almost nobody out there uh, who puts all of their money into trend following. Um, so you know, you, you obviously you've got trend following. You've got other styles like uh, like value. Um, you know, you've got um, styles like uh, short volatility. Um, you know, we, these are all I guess sources of different kind of risk premia um, that as investors we want to collect. Um, so you know, this this another way of thinking about the styles is essentially that there's a whole bunch of risk premia out there. Uh, again, the fancy description for them is that they're latent risk premia. So we can't actually see them or measure them directly, um, but we know that there are certain kinds of assets and certain kinds of trading styles that give us access to those. Um, and you you really want to have you know a wide variety of these risk premia because when things go really badly um, and uh, diversification rises amongst the kind of long only portfolio, um, you've you've got a better chance of surviving if you've got these other things in your portfolio as well. Um, so the so the styles. Um, that's the kind of top level um, and then uh, obviously you've, you've got asset classes uh, the nice thing that as, as futures traders is we can go beyond stocks and bonds we can go into commodities we can even go into Bitcoin if, if we're brave although I'm not that brave Moritz I have to say not as brave as you um, and then uh, obviously within asset classes as well um, you know you really want to have a geographical diversification and this really fights against Kind of one of the the, the most well-known psychological biases uh, in the industry, which is the idea of home bias. People just prefer to own stocks in their own country. Um, and uh, I guess, if, uh, as someone who was uh, an Italian investor, and seeing you know the the um, MIB index down, I think close to twenty percent on a single day. Um, you know, you, that's someone who really would have benefited from from having a much wider diversification across countries than than just focusing on one country. Um, so, and then of course, you know, we can dive even deeper into diversifying across industry sectors in, in equities and, and so on. Um, and what, one of the main points I make in, in, in the book smart portfolios is that diversification is, is kind of a, um, something where there's diminishing returns. So there's a huge benefit from starting with a long only portfolio and then adding say trend following to it. By the time you get down to the level where you're deciding whether you should buy your your fifth kind of U.S. oil company, and you've already got four, um, you know the the kind of expected benefit from that is pretty small, um, and and that's why you know one of these truisms in the industry is that getting your asset allocation right um, is is more important than perhaps your stock selection. Um, but I'd even go to the kind of level above that and say getting a good uh, exposure to diversified sources of risk premia. Um, is perhaps even more important than asset allocation. I I, I want to say something more. It's just sorry sorry to interrupt you here. Just just a couple of things. One is I like your 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 top down view on diversification. We actually had a uh, a listener not uh, long ago, um, and uh, who who talked about he was a consultant to a lot of uh, pensions. I think and. Uh, and he was just basically dividing and asking people, so, you know, what's your diversification versus, you know, between convergent strategies and divergent strategies, right? Uh, and for those people who may not be familiar with that, but basically convergent strategies are things that tend to prefer stable markets and divergent is 
strategies that that likes change, like trend following. And and what he found was that most people had like 90% or, or more in the convergent bucket. So thinking about your portfolio in these terms is, is super helpful. The other point I wanted to make is uh, just about the um, correlation you mentioned, the breakdown of correlation between bonds and equities, because of course, risk parity strategies have become so popular. But and it's absolutely true that there has been this nice negative correlation for the past 10, 12 years for most days between stocks and bonds. However, don't you know we shouldn't forget that if you go back 50 years or 100 years, normal the normal correlation between stocks and bonds is actually positive 66% of the time. So this is another danger zone that I think we 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 have to uh, really be aware of. And then back to something that Moritz and I have talked about, and it could be what you wanted to bring up, Moritz. I don't know. But we've been talking about this point about in our trend-following portfolio, should we just keep adding markets, right? Or when is enough in terms of markets? Because on our side, we trade only 55 markets. And uh, I know Moritz trades a lot more and 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 and, uh, and Jerry, for that matter. Uh, you know, so we've always had this little bit of a debate uh, where we need a kind of an independent ref to come and talk to us about it. So maybe, Rob, that's what you need to do today about, you know, where does... Where where is the limit within trend following portfolios in terms of just adding markets? You are the referee. I mean, just uh, because we just touched on the MIP, the MIP lost close to twenty four percent this past week. The DAX is down twenty percent. I'd say the reason I'm not down ten percent or twenty percent is because my portfolio is so diversified. It's diversified across markets. It's diversified across time frames and systems. It's diversified across long and short positions. Right? There's stuff in there that's just independent just by eyeballing it rapeseed and crude oil and bitcoin and equities and you know all of that stuff and it is really my belief it's one of those things that has been instilled in my brain kind of like chiseled in that i'm not giving up is diversification is the only free lunch that you can harvest out there and there is a diversification benefit that you can get from every market that you're adding to a portfolio that does not show perfect and perfectly stable correlation to any of the other markets, right? Now, that benefit mathematically gets smaller the more assets you add to the portfolio. But that being said, even though the marginal benefit gets smaller, it's still a positive benefit. And so my belief really is that from a risk-adjusted return perspective, if I'm trading as many markets as I can, if they don't have perfect correlation, then I should get better risk-adjusted returns. And I'm a bit puzzled by, you know, we've heard some some people from the industry say, and the name shall stay unmentioned, that, oh, no, 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 we've started to reduce positions. We've started to reduce markets, not positions, but markets in our portfolio. We're back from, we maybe say we had 100, now we're at 70, we're going to 50 because we want to have more conviction in certain positions and they're kind of like showing the same trains anyway. And I say, no, 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 this is, this is, this is wrong. This is, I'm, I'm not moving on that. Um, so you're the referee on that, Rob. Okay, the referee is ready to make his decision. Um, I, well, I will just say before you do that, Rob, I may have a few other points than Rob, uh, than, than Moritz before. Yeah. Uh, but um, anyways, I'll let you talk. Yeah. I'll let you talk. Um, I mean, I would say that Moritz is theoretically correct, but from a practical perspective, um, he may not be right. Um, so I agree with you that... Every market you add will um, will add, you know, a small amount of performance to your portfolio, and that the the benefit will obviously reduce over time. So, um, I'm trading about 35 markets, um, 
I would definitely like to trade more than that. Absolutely. Um, and I'm the reason I can't is because I have I'm just trading my own money, so I've got relatively limited capital. Um, so that's the first kind of practical reason why you can't necessarily trade as many markets as you would like. Um, so if if I could be permitted to plug my latest book, which is called Leverage Trading, of course. Uh, so uh, and a lot of the time I spend in that book is it's really aimed at retail traders with relatively little capital, and I spend a lot of time asking the question: If you've got limited capital, what is the best use you can make of it? Um, and the, the the kind of first thing I say is, look, if you have enough capital to trade, to add an extra market to your portfolio, then almost certainly that is what you should do, um, because you're going to see a, a benefit that will be larger than doing almost anything else with, with that uh, extra money. Um, so if you have a, a large amount of capital, and I, I'm, I'm saying hundreds of millions, if not billions now, um, then it, it's quite likely um, that you will be able to add quite a lot of markets. Um, the there is a, a cost as a business to having extra markets, and this is kind of interesting because it. Um, when I was um, working for uh, AHL, I do remember having a conversation with the, um, the the chief operating officer of the fund, and he called me into his office and he says, "Look, I notice you've you've um, decided to add." another 45 markets to this fund some of them are going to have very small allocations the the expected return is is going to be quite small and i put on my moritz hat and i said well yes but it will be positive in the expectation um uh, so we should absolutely do this for the from the client's perspective this is the right thing to do um and uh, he said well yes but is as from our perspective as a business is it the right thing to do because um you know there's there's sort of a fixed cost to adding each of these markets um and at some point the the fixed cost is going to be greater than what we could realistically expect to earn from kind of higher management and performance fees so that was kind of interesting that was a a classic kind of uh incentive conflict between you know the client and the manager what was was best for the client wasn't necessarily best for the manager um, I think there is a compromise. So if, if I can get you guys to talk to each other again and get out of this fight. <laughs> um, no, I'll tell you one thing before you get the compromise, yeah. because this is important. Yeah. Because I've, I've said to both uh, Moritz and Jerry that it's not that I disagree about adding more markets, right? So we trade 55 markets, and of course we could trade a few more. But I also remember from from my conversations with uh, my peers over the last 20 years, I mean, a lot of them think that once you get to 60, 65 markets, there aren't that many that are really that, uh, you know, uh, diversifying for you. But anyways, my point was slightly different when I talked, when I kind of said the point about you also need to have conviction in your portfolio. And that is one of the things we were discussing was that I don't believe you can keep adding more markets and trade them with the same level of risk. That's the point. I think if you have 100 markets, you need to trade smaller compared if you're having 50 markets. That's just my, that's my belief. I don't have any statistical backing for that, but that's my belief. And that's why I'm saying sometimes we also don't have to be afraid of having conviction in the portfolio where we have maybe fewer markets, but where the exposure is a little bit bigger because otherwise we're just going to end up looking like, you know, average, okay, right? If so, we just make, yeah. yeah so yeah. That, that's, I just want to say that before you and, give and, your and, final, and final maybe, verdict. Maybe one thing before you start, Rob, and, and then you can answer that question at the same time. Obviously, 
if you have the same amount of capital today and you're doubling the number of markets, then yes, you need to trade them with less risk. But let's just assume that we're talking institutionally sized, like a billion bucks or so portfolio, yeah. right? You can really go across all those markets, I think. And the the extra costs, I mean, well, I don't know how, how people are doing it, but for me, the extra cost of another market is really zero. Okay. It's traded automatically. I'm, I'm paying market data cost anyway, right? Maybe that market that I will be adding is less liquid than the ones that I have in my portfolio. So it may have a little bit of more transactional related cost. But other than that, it is, it is just not there. And the final point I want to make is that with our style of trading, I think there is a second dimension to that diversification that you do not see in a long only type of portfolio. If we're long only buy and hold and we're putting equities together, right? Like the, the 51st stock isn't going to add as much as the 50th and so on. But we don't know where the trends are going to be. The more markets we trade, the greater the probability that we will catch one of those trends. We don't know where the trends are. It's not about just the diversification that the daily returns are uncorrelated to each other. It's we're trying to increase the probability spectrum of getting on a ride on some of those markets that have a massive trend and hopefully takes us to the moon to pay for all those losers. And the more markets I trade, the greater that probability is. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a quantitative way of describing what you said, Moritz, which is that if you compare the correlation of a trading system with the correlation yes. of the underlying assets, it's Correct. less than it's less. So um, obviously, if you've got a really slow trend following system, um, then it's going to have quite a high correlation with the underlying asset, uh, especially if that asset has got a lot, you know, a big secular trend in it, like I don't know, euro dollar. The last forty years, a really slow trend following system would have been pretty much long the whole time, maybe briefly a couple of times short or net flat, but it's going to have a correlation probably about 0.9. Uh, if you've got a really fast trend following system or something doing something even weirder, um, then it's going to, you know, the, the correlation between uh, that and the underlying assets going to be much lower. Uh, and if I compare two really fast trend following systems, even on two assets that are quite highly correlated, uh, like say, I don't know, US five year and 10 year bonds. Um, so US five year and 10 year bonds, log only, the correlation is probably about 0.95. Um, a kind of medium speed trend following, you can get that down to about 0 0.6, 0 0.7. So mathematically, there is a greater return to diversification. Um, I think the compromise w would be, and it's an idea I've been thinking about myself, um, if you have a system which uh, scales position according to conviction, uh, which, which is what I call forecast scaling, uh, and in trend following, that would be something simple like, you know, the, the stronger the trend is, the short, the, the, you know, the, the longer or the shorter you'll get. Um, you, you can kind of um, introduce uh, a threshold, which basically means you don't take positions um, if that conviction level is too low. And what that means in practice is you can have a very large portfolio of markets that you're collecting data for and monitoring. But it might be that only on about a third of those at any given time would you actually have enough conviction to hold a position. So it might be that, that your, your, your theoretical portfolio has 150 markets in it, but only about 50 of them you know, do have the conviction and do have a decent sized risk. Now that's going to be particularly valuable for um, you know, people with sub-institutional sized portfolios because it means they can get a lot of the benefits of having a very large portfolio of markets, but it might be that they only have to hold you know, um, a dozen positions at a time. Um, so that, that's one way of doing it uh, to kind of bridge these, these two worlds. 
Um, but you know, if I'm if I'm being honest, you know, once once we kind of push the practical issues to one side, um, and I, I should say, Moritz, that the markets I was talking about earlier with the practical problems, those were actually OTC markets. So, you know, the costs perhaps are fixed costs are there, which perhaps wouldn't be for futures necessarily. Fine. Yeah. Um, but but I'm I'm kind of probably to be honest more on Moritz's side than on yours, Niels. To be honest, I think, you know, as a rule of thumb, all of the things being equal, you can always come back. <laughs> uh, all the things being equal, as a rule of thumb, you should have more market as many markets in your portfolio as you can cope with. Yeah. No. I mean, again, I I think you're from a theoretical point of view, I fully understand it. When I look at uh, real data from managers, um, I'm not so sure. I see the evidence, but you know. That's fine. But actually, I think you make a good point, right? Because since I know a little bit more about Moritz's system, he knows about our system, we are the longer term guys, right? So, you know, compared to what he's doing. So there may definitely be some more benefits for for him to do so. Um, and um, so, yeah, no, I mean, great. This is one of those topics that often comes up and we loved, you know, hatching it out from time to time. So, uh, so let's do that. Moritz, uh, why don't you take us somewhere else in your thoughts and um, more yeah. more about diversification or a completely different well, topic? Well, maybe let's change topic about? because we've got so sure. many topics, uh, Rob, we could probably uh, speak to you for three hours today and, and maybe we have to split the episode if it takes too long, which is which is fine. Um, but maybe remind us, I mean, what, what, what do you trade? You, I think you've mentioned you have a long-only stock and bond portfolio, you have a trend-following system, but what type of other strategies do you have? I mean, do you trade mean reversion type of systems? Do you trade the VIX? Um, do you, I don't know, uh, you know, do you trade options or linear instruments? Tell us a bit about what it is that you do. Yeah, so I, I have a, a log only um, stock or bond portfolio that's implemented through ETFs. Uh, and that's a kind of classic kind of tactical asset allocation um, system. So, uh, and it's using um, uh, basically uh, momentum for the sort of asset allocation side. Um, and then within asset classes, uh, it's it's based on the fairly simple value measures, um, and that's you know geographically spread as you can with ETFs across a lot of different countries, um, and you know within bonds across different credit qualities uh, and, and currency exposures. Uh, I then got a, a UK uh, stock portfolio um, that's that's basically um, I would I would describe it as a kind of mixture of value and momentum. So I use um, value uh, filters to to select stocks, um, and it's it's kind of forced to be diversified across sectors. Um, but then the the exit is is uh, a momentum base, so it's effectively just a stop loss. Uh, and interestingly, um, a week ago I had um, a dozen of the stocks in this portfolio, and as of yesterday I have zero because every single stock got hit. Um, so that that's kind of uh, interesting. Um, and then the, the, the more uh, relevant and interesting part of my portfolio is um, uh, fully automated. Um, so the other two portfolios are systematic but not fully automated. Um, the stops are, um, but the, the, the entry isn't. Uh, so I've got a fully automated futures portfolio um, spread across you know, all the major asset classes. Uh, I do trade the VIX, I also trade the European VIX. Um, the, the actual V stocks, yeah. Um, the actual um, s sort of breakdown of styles within that is probably roughly around 50% momentum, um, about 40% carry, 
and 10% mean reversion. So if, if we go back to, to Niels's favorite split of convergent and divergent, that's pretty much 50-50 convergent divergent. Mm -hmm. um, and because I'm, I'm trading my own money, um, I'm not limited by sort of institutional uh, constraints. So, you know, my previous job, uh, there's no way I would have been allowed to have had this much divergent stuff because that's not what the client was looking for. Um, we you know we were looking at portfolios that were 70 to 80% uh, momentum. Um, and then 20, you know, the other 20%, uh, 30% could be the carry and the mean reversion stuff. Um, so yeah, it's 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 um, fairly um, diversified. It's diversified across time frames um, as, as much as I can. Um, and the way that sort of enters in is that during the fitting process, um, I, I generally speaking can't distinguish between the pre-cost returns of different momentum strategies for different markets. Uh, but obviously you have to consider costs. So what that means in practice is that something like Euro dollar, which is quite expensive to trade because it's low vol, um, I'm trading that pretty slowly. Um, whereas, you know, some of the stock markets I'm trading more quickly. Um, that makes that slightly count sort of goes against some sort of stylized facts in the industry, which is that fast momentum doesn't work, work so well on stocks. Um, but the, the kind of statistical evidence in favor of trying to treat all markets equally before costs for me outweighs that particular effect. Um, I don't trade options. Um, I, I think it's fair to say I would like to trade options um, because my exposure to the, the kind of risk premium of options comes mainly through a, a sort of systematic bias to being short the VIX and short the V stocks. Um, um, but I'm not getting any kind of relative value option premium anything like that. Um, actually, in a former life, I was an options trader at an investment bank, so you know I do know the space. Um, but you know, it would be a relatively large amount of work for me to set up a, a systematic options trading strategy, um, and um, I would need to be really, really careful about things like execution. Um, whereas at the moment, I'm, you know, I'm, I can be a little bit uh, more relaxed about it. But you know, um, if I if I was, you know had a systematic short options portfolio that needed to be delta hedged uh, uh you know the potential for losses last week i mean you know you really you really have to have, have extremely high grade kind of automation and uh, uh that that's not something i'm prepared to put the work into so yeah or short variance swaps which is you know the square of that fall I exactly yeah but that that's a product that's only really available yeah. to institutional investors unless you do something crazy like buy you know a short leveraged etf which uh, and I'm not going to do. Yeah. So I saw you were tweeting, I think yesterday or the day before, about uh, getting ready to file your taxes in the UK and that you had done really well this past 12 months. So what's worked really well for you, given that very kind of diversified type of approach to to uh, to the markets? Um... Yeah, so the... The, the, the futures portfolio this year has done really well. So I, I tend to measure my performance uh, on the UK tax year basis. That's roughly from April to March. Um, so as of now, it's up about 30, 31%. And my annualized vol target is 25%. So that's a sharp of just over one. So uh, that's pretty good. Uh, that's my best performance uh, since I think 2014. Um, so uh, that's worked, worked pretty well. Um, within that things that have done well um, it's been things like the metals um, you know palladium platinum they've uh, they've been they've done very well 
um, the and um, the, because I have more more carry than most most trend followers, um, I think the carry's done particularly well um, this year, um, and and so you know coming to the end of my kind of performance monitoring period, if I just looked at the annual figures, I'd see thirty one percent up in my uh, futures portfolio, um, you know in my kind of long only stock and bond portfolio I mean it's going to be perhaps down 20% something like that um, so just on an annual basis I could say yes this has been a really good diversifying uh, year for, for adding the trend following product that's a little bit naughty though because as we've already discussed that's not really because the futures delivered the crisis alpha in the last couple of weeks it's more that um, they you know my, I was lucky to have done very well um, throughout the, the latter half of of 2019 uh 20 january 2020 was up i was up nine percent i think uh february i think i was up a couple of percent um and and so far this month i'm flat so um it's more with a case of all the money being made and then hanging in there over over the recent crisis which is you know it is obviously fine but but it's not it's not quite true to say that the, the portfolio delivered crisis alpha just because on a year-by-year -year basis um, it, it's still done very well. Most of that performance has actually come before the crisis has hit. Yeah, and by the way, I mean, I, I love the person who uh, who uh, coined the phrase crisis alpha and, and even wrote a book with her. Katie. Um, but I, and I was, exactly. And I was so, I, I was so, I've said this before on the podcast, I was so excited in 2011 when this phrase was coined because I thought, yes, finally, institutions have something they can gravitate to and this is why they need us, right? I actually have changed my mind on this because now that's all they can talk about and that's all they can measure us against. And of course, I mean, our firm goes back to 1974. So when we designed our systems, we didn't design it with a crisis alpha in mind. I mean, that didn't exist. So I'm kind of, you know, let's not get too excited about crisis alpha. Let's just produce absolute returns. And if we can do that with you know, zero correlation over time. We're doing a great job, and we have a role to play in in any portfolio, really. So uh, yeah, I mean, but I wanted. To sorry, can I just on that point? It's just I think um, you you need to think about one of common sense. Um, you want to buy insurance against the market crashing. Um, you, you're if you want perfect insurance, you're going to have to pay for it. Um, so you know, perfect insurance would be something like buying after the money puts, and always buying them. You know, not not buying them selectively when you think they're 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 cheap. Um, over time, that will lose you money. That's a negative sharp mm. ratio strategy. Um, trend following is something that provides less protection um, against market crashes um, because if they're sudden and savage, then you won't necessarily, you know, get your insurance policy paying out. But it does seem to be something that has a positive sharp ratio. Um, so it's kind of unrealistic to to expect that you can have your cake and eat it. You can't you can't have a product which will give you perfect protection in a crisis but also make you money that that's that's ridiculous um you know if you're really that worried about a crisis then then you're you're going to have to spend a, a lot more money on on buying your insurance policy um and, and investing in something like a tail protect fund um that will consistently lose your money in, until something like a couple of weeks ago happens I'm going to jump a little bit around. Uh, I'm sure Morris will do as well. But it was just something that you said um, and um, that I'm not sure whether it surprised me or whether I just seem to have have a different 
a memory of things that I've read from you or heard from you, because you you mentioned before, I think, uh, that you don't trade the markets necessarily exactly the same way. And um, I thought that I had heard previously from you that it's a really good idea to trade all markets equal, so to speak. Can you talk to me? Because this is another discussion we, we've had, not necessarily because we disagree, but but there's always this thing about, you know, when you build, say, a trend-following portfolio, and in our case, we trade all markets equal, even though we know that none of them is going to be optimal. I mean, we could find models that or speeds or parameters that are better for, for certain markets. Of course, we could. We still choose to trade them equal. Talk to us a little bit about that conundrum and, and why you've chosen to go your way uh, and, 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 and so on and so, so forth. And how, because we have both a lot of institutional and private investors listening to us, but we also have a lot of people who are trying to design their own systems. And this is one of the things that they will definitely be, be wondering about what, what should they do. Yeah, so I'll probably start in a more abstract sense than home in on what I actually do with my own system. So um, I think human beings um, have a real tendency to, to love stories and to, to think, oh, actually, every market is different. Um, and um, every market should be treated differently, um, and that seems logical, right? There's no. It seems bizarre in, in a way that Aussie dollar should be treated the same as pork bellies. Um, and I think um, another reason for that is that, that a lot of the institutional memory of people in the industry comes out of pit trading, um, where the guy who was in the in the pork bellies pit um, would be nowhere near the Aussie dollar pit, uh, may even be on a different exchange. Um, and you know he wouldn't presume to think that he could be kind of removed from the pork belly pit and then go and trade Aussie dollar in exactly the same way that he'd been trading um, pork bellies. Um, that that seems logical to human beings. That just seems like common sense. Um, now to address this um, in uh, the book I wrote recently, um, I I said okay that's the story, but what's the evidence for it? Um, and I did a, a plot and I said right for um, a particular speed of uh, moving average crossover what is the sharp ratio across you know 40 different futures markets across including port values including Aussie dollar uh, and there's this wonderful compelling graph and on, on and it shows uh, a strong negative sharp ratio for I think the worst market is the Swiss stock market index uh, and at the other extreme um, I think it's something like um, Italian bonds um, interestingly, given what's happened recently, um, that have the, the very strong positive performance. Um, and uh, I say, oh, wow, it looks like common sense is correct. And that they, this for this particular, we should actually be making a decision here that only in some markets should we be using this momentum filter because there's a lot of markets clearly where it does very badly. But then I say, well, now let's add uh, an extra thing to this graph, which is the concept of statistical significance. So rather than just showing the, the mid-estimate for the, the sharp ratio for a given market, I put around that um, error bars, um, which give us an idea of um, the, the sort of confidence interval that we can have. Um, and we can basically say, yep, we can be 95% confident that the sharp ratio, which we know the average number for, we can be 95% confident it's somewhere between this lower estimate and this upper estimate. And when you add the error bars to this this wonderful clear plot showing negative to positive sharp ratios, what you see is that none of those sharp ratio differences are significant, because all the error bars overlap massively. 
Um, so there's actually about a 30% chance that the Swiss stock market index could be just as good, if not better, than the Korean three-year bond, even though they're at the opposite ends of this, this plot. Sorry, the Italian 10-year bond, I think I said earlier. Um, so, you know, doing that kind of exercise really rams home to you that the human intuition that, that all markets are different um, is not really the case. Um, and, and, and whenever anyone finds evidence for it in a backtest, they probably haven't done this exercise of checking to see if the evidence is actually statistically significant. So my starting point is normally that the returns from a given system, for a given market, whatever it is we're, we're trying to fit across or optimize across are the same. The sharp ratios are the same in expectation. Um, but here's the caveat, and I think there's a bit of confusion about what I said earlier. This is on a pre-cost basis. So on a pre-cost basis, I believe that you know, momentum on 10-year bonds in Italy is the same as momentum on the Swiss stock market index. I've got no evidence to suggest otherwise. Therefore, I know I whip out my trusty Occam's razor and say that the simplest thing is true. You know, I can't, I can't distinguish my hypothesis, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm going to treat these markets the same. But they don't have the same costs. Um, and that, that means that, although in principle you may think that a, a faster system um, should be um, traded with all markets in practice that file system is just going to be too expensive to trade for something like euro dollar so that's the diff the only difference between the again it's the difference in theory and practice in theory I'd probably have all my markets trading exactly the same in practice um, there, are, there are some markets where faster systems are just too expensive and therefore I have to reduce or even eliminate uh, those from those markets but um, Generally speaking, um, I mean, I, I have seen some patterns that look convincing. Like, for example, if you look at momentum and carry across the, the US bond curve going up from two years to 30 years, it does look like there's a pattern there. It looks like momentum is better at the short end and carry at the long end. But, you know, the, statistically, the evidence is, is weak enough that the, my preference is to keep things simple, um, keep things robust treat everything the same before costs and then and then bring costs into the equation shame that uh jerry isn't here this week he would have loved exactly that point um you know we're talking about sample size a lot and you know when we say that at the end of the day markets are markets are the prices are the result of human behavior human humans trading with each other or humans programming systems that will trade automatically but you know it has a human origin and kind of like you should see it reflected in the same way in hogs or pork bellies, which no longer exist as you would in the Aussie dollar. So therefore, let's just design systems that will treat them all in the same way. And the, the, the positive thing about that is, is that you get larger sample size. If you're doing, you know, say a 200 day breakout in the same way across all markets, say you're trading 80 or 100 markets, then that gives you, it simply produces a larger statistical body of evidence that you can work with and therefore larger and better statistical significance to come to a conclusion as to whether your system was worth trading or not. Now, if you have one market that's not trading the 200-day breakout, it's trading the 198-day breakout, the 199-day breakout, even though that's super, super close, technically you could say, well, 
I can no longer include that in my sample because it's really trading a different thing. So sample size reduces and my the quality assessment that I can make of that system is no longer probably as good. Now, the counter argument I have with that, and, and I think that's true first off, but one of the, the counter arguments that I could make is say, well, let's, let, let's test the portfolio and the, on the 199 day breakout and you will get the same sample size probably or very close to the 200 day breakout portfolio and it will show you results that are very similar, maybe identical even, right? Then we do the same on the 190, on the 180, on the blah, 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 all the other breakout type of levels and we would find that there are all good systems. So if they're all good systems and we would all trade them, why not diversify across those systems, which is kind of like what we're doing anyway, right? And then you could kind of like create a bridge into helping you to say, okay, some markets I'm trading with a 150-day breakout and some other markets I'm trading with a 250-day breakout, maybe also in light of the costs, which you have just mentioned, um, Robert, which which I think are a, that that is a that is a practical truth. That is a factor that some of the markets are just more expensive to trade than others. Um, so you can probably get away with that. And, you know, we're still not at the point where I think we have a, a final answer on that. And probably as, as usual, there, there isn't the one answer. And there's many different perspectives on that. And people have to pick and choose what they feel comfortable with. Yeah, I think we're very much on the same page. I'm, I'm definitely a fan of, of, you know, including as many things in your portfolio as you can, whether it be instruments, as we discussed at length, or, you know, diversifying across styles or and, and then within styles across time frames. Um, absolutely. Um, you know, the, 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 the point about uh, sample size is extremely important because, um, you know, we are limited in how much data we have. Um, we're trading quite slowly. So, you know, it's not we're not going to get a huge benefit by um, necessarily even getting 10 years more data to add to our 40 year backtest. Um, but the difference between able to backtest with just one market worth of data and being able to backtest with 100 markets worth of data, um, you know, so as a rule of thumb, statistical significance increases at the square root of the number of things you've got, whether it be years of data or ma markets. So, you know, you can have 10 times more data if you've got 100, um, sorry, you can have 10 times more statistical significance if you've got 100 markets rather than if you've got one. And that's just, you know, a, a huge, a huge difference. Um, I mean, there's a slight conundrum here, which I kind of alluded to earlier, which is that you want to diversify across instruments, you want to diversify across time frames, but you can't necessarily do both in the way that you'd like to because of the cost issue. Um, so, you know, if I want to trade fast, um, I have to do so in a place where I've got less diversification across instruments because there are a few instruments I can trade fast. Um, so, you know, there's actually an interesting problem in in terms of how you deal with with those do you do you, do you kind of with those two problems um you know you can you've got to f say well either i don't trade fast at all which is reasonably valid and somebody like winton i guess that's the route they've gone down um or you say right i'm, I'm going to trade trade fast but i know that i've got a limited set of instruments to do so um and therefore in that space at least i'm, I'm giving up some of the instrument diversification that i can keep at the slower the slower end where you know, we're talking about 200 day moving averages, you know, pretty much everything can be traded with a 200 day moving average. Um, but if we're talking about, you know, like a, a five day breakout system, then, you know, you, you probably can't trade that with, with something like Eurodollar because it'll just be too expensive. 
Yeah, no, a very interesting um, challenge. Um, now, we had one question actually from from um, one of the guys that came to the live event that we hosted uh, last year, um, and that's from Seth. And he, he just asked uh, whether we could just discuss a little bit about how you uh, incorporate, uh, you know, correlation uh, into a trend-following uh, program. Um, so, again, obviously you trade 35 markets, you said, um, but but what are your thoughts about correlations in terms of, uh, in co- you know, thinking about it in building that uh, system or model? So I sort of deal with it on two levels. The first is, is to think about the long-term correlation between the trading systems. Um, and we've already discussed that, right? We've, we've said that's generally lower than it is for the, the actual instruments themselves. Um, so y- what you, you want to do is obviously measure correlation um, and use it to, to, to construct the most diversified um, set of portfolios you can do. So that means, for example, um, that, that you want to diversify across asset classes because they do have a lower correlation than, say, um, you know, five and ten year bonds. Um, the trading systems themselves, as I said, not as correlated as the underlying assets, but they're still going to be reasonably well correlated. Whereas, you know, a, a trading system trading um, lean hogs versus Aussie dollar, there's going to be quite a low correlation there. So those are two things you want to have in your portfolio. Um, the, the same thing applies, actually, interestingly, with, with the question of speed. Um, so a 199 day and a 200 day moving average are very highly correlated. Um, so as well as costs coming in, in terms of thinking about how you um, allocate across speeds, the other thing is that you want to have probably, ideally, you know, ignoring all other effects, a bit more fast momentum and a bit more slow momentum and not so much medium momentum, because that medium momentum is going to be correlated with both the fast and the slow, whereas the fast and the slow are going to be more diversifying because they're, they're kind of quite sort of spread out on the frequency spectrum. Um, so you, you have this weird kind of effect that you, you want to have a sort of a U-shape set of weights allocating to speeds, a lot on the fast, a lot on the slow, not so much in the medium. Um, but if you then apply the kind of question of costs on that, then obviously that's going to push push you potentially out of the fast and into the medium and the slow. Um, so um, that's the first thing. You want to use correlation as a, as a guide to, to say, you know, how you should spread out your, your assets and how you allocate uh, across them, whether that be instruments or, or training systems. Um, but the other thing you then need to do is um, work out how much diversification you've actually got, um, because um, you're going to need to run your system quite quite differently. Um, if you've got a, an awful lot of, of, of forecasts coming in, um, which are very uncorrelated, um, then the average forecast is going to be much lower because it's going to be reducing the standard deviation of your forecast. So you need to actually come up with a a way of of scaling um, your your portfolio to compensate for that. Um, And in my work, I call this the diversification multiplier. Um, And, uh, you know, the the idea is that as you add instruments and rules to a trading system, you, you kind of estimate this diversification multiplier and the only thing you need to estimate is is the correlation matrix and the and the vector of of weights allocation weights, uh, and that then produces a, a single number that you can then just multiply everything by. Um, so that means in practice that um, your your um, system may be in a position where at times it's taking on a lot of risk, 
um, because although on average all of these correlations are potentially quite low uh, in in peak periods um, when when you know when forecasts are very strong um, potentially you could be taking on a lot of risk um, so that brings me to the kind of other dimension of using correlation and I think Neil's mentioned this earlier and that's in terms of your kind of risk overlay um, so you know I talked about the long term about building a system that on average is uncorrelated is diversified about scaling the system up to compensate for that but actually as risk managers we want to we actually care about what our portfolio looks like today you know what, where are we long where are we short and what the current correlation is of those positions um, and um, I have a, a risk management overlay which, which which kind of takes that into account um, and, and if the portfolio is is the estimated risk of my portfolio is currently much higher than I normally want um, so my, you know, my average risk target is 25% annualized standard deviation if it's saying it's it's if it's saying that right now these positions have a risk of 75 percent then i'm going to leverage back i'm going to reduce my my exposure overall so um uh, you know people often say to me you know oh well a common question is um how much data should i use to estimate a correlation matrix um and my answer is well that depends what are you going to use it for um if you're using it to to construct a, a system um over you know a 30-year back test then there's probably nothing wrong with using that whole period to estimate the correlations um, and certainly at least five years I would say um, if it's asking answering the question what is the current risk of my portfolio um, then you're going to need a much shorter estimate um, I would I would say you know perhaps maybe about three months um, and ideally some kind of exponential weighting that gives uh, higher weight to more recent data because when things like last week happen when correlation patterns shift your risk measure adjusts to that and is able to say well yeah actually um, you know your your long stocks and bonds that's actually now much riskier um, so you you know you really need to, to cut back your leverage to compensate for that yeah no I mean I couldn't agree more so I think that's really important um, so thanks very much uh, for that. What's on your mind, Moritz? Uh, we obviously want to be respectful of uh, Rob's time uh, on on this Saturday morning. So, uh, but I'm sure we can squeeze in a few more questions before we let him go. So, uh, yeah, Cu couple more. Uh, also, a listener question. Um, Long-term listener shares the same name as me, Moritz. He's asking you how you go about changing your systems over time, and um, you know how you modify systems, how you detect decay and, you know, um, obviously, you know, those are sub subjective decisions, I'd say, and it's the discretionary thing that even systematic traders need to admit that they're doing, which is fine. Is there anything else that you're doing on a discretionary basis? Um, I mean, in terms of changing the system, I, I, I try and change it as little as possible. Um, I think um, there's probably a bias in the institutional world, at least that this was my experience, towards changing systems too much. Um, so, you know, if you if you say, well, I've got a 40-year back test, um, and I've now got another year of data, is that really going to change my mind very much? Um, is it, you know, if I was to refit the system and then compare the the, the parameters and, and say, well, they've changed, yes, but on a statistical basis, have they really changed that much? No, probably not. Um, so ideally I'd only be changing the system probably when I was introducing something new into it so if I have a new new kind of trading rule or a new instrument that that obviously means that the capital has to be redeployed um, you know and uh, to be honest actually over the last few years I've mostly been taking stuff out 
Um, and that's not been because I've I've joined more, you know the the club of Neils and and saying that fewer instruments is better. Um, it's it's been exogenous things like um, you know the, the the fees on market data being increased. And as, as an individual trader, I was couldn't justify paying the higher fees. Um, it's been um, actually there is one perhaps more interesting example, which is um, when volatility has fallen too low in a particular instrument. Uh, and it was the two-year German bond future, the Schatz, um, and uh, the volatility had reduced to a level where the, basically the trading costs on a risk-adjusted basis were, were just exploded, uh, and the, the size of positions required um, was was very high, um, and there was potentially kind of a tail risk there in that, although generally speaking the vol was very low, you know it could easily one day change and become very high overnight, something that happened with, uh, you know, Swiss Euro back in 2015. Um, so I decided to to remove that uh, instrument from my system until the, the vol had recovered to a, a level. Um, and that, that I'd call that a kind of semi kind of discretionary decision in that, um, you know, I, it's not like I have in my system a, an automatic kind of logic saying if vol is less than X, then, you know, position equals zero. Um, it was more a question of me saying, well, the vol looks really low here. Um, and, and it's a kind of qualitative judgment as, as, as to what point you cut it off. Um, but but I think once that judgment's been made, then then you do essentially have a trading rule um, because I, I was I said, right, you know, if, if any instrument goes below this vol level, I'm going to remove it from my system um, and I'm not going to introduce it until the vol goes back above, you know, a, a higher level. Um, and although that's not kind of formally part of the code of my system it is it's a rule I adhere to um, in a kind of external sense. Um, I have a couple of times had to um, dial back my exposure in, in markets because the the margin uh, requirements increased very dramatically. Um, so I'm, I'm running at 25% analyzed vol which um, is a bit higher than most institutions so I, I do use tend to use a bit more margin uh, probably um, the most institutions do, um, and the, 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 I had to cut my uh, V stocks exposure in in half um, a while a while back because the margin increased, and it just so happened that I had quite a big position on. Okay, so in an ideal world, I'd have some kind of fancy optimization uh, that that knew about margin levels and and re redeployed capital in the most efficient way. Uh, you know that that's something that, that theoretically I could do, but it, it's quite a lot of work. So I I took the uh, the, the more discretionary decision of saying, right, I'm going to cut my position in half uh, until the margin level recovers to the point where I can afford to hold it again. But yeah, I, I, I do try not not to meddle with my system. I mean, I real, I, you know, I, I, I go on, a, I bang on about it in my books and, and on my website and all the time saying, you know, do not override your system. So I, I do try and practice what I preach. And, uh, you know, if I, if I do override it, I sort of put my hands up and say, look, guys, I, I have done this, but I believe there's a very good reason for it, but it should be a relatively rare event, definitely. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, that's uh, that's all uh, very interesting. Um, for me, maybe as a last overall uh, you know, topic that I just wanted to dig into a little bit, uh, Moritz may have a few more, but, uh, you know, given what we're going through at the moment, I think one point that is uh, so important, generally speaking, um, whatever you do in the investment world, uh, is risk management. Um, you know, I think that that is something that we, you know, it gets tested from time to time to to an extreme. I think that's what we've been going through again uh, the last uh, week or two. Um, 
And uh, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you think about it. What is, in your opinion, a good risk management framework? Because there are many different types of risk, right, in, in what we do. Um, and um, and maybe also some of the things you've learned along the way through the various uh, crises or stress periods that you've been, uh, you know, uh, trading through. Um, what are the things that stand out and... Um, you know, yeah, if you can talk a little bit uh, to, to that, that would be great. I mean, w- one of the nice things about the kind of style of trading that, that we do is that most of the risk management is kind of done for you by the system itself. Um, and that, that happens really to th- through two different avenues. The first is volatility scaling. Uh, and the second is, the, you know, the use of a momentum filter. Um, so in terms of volatility scaling, when when positions get riskier, um, the system will automatically reduce the size of the position to compensate. Um, so if you were unfortunate enough to be to be long S&P futures um, a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, the, the VIX was at like, I don't know, 12 maybe. Um, and um, now it's at 70. So it's gone up by a, a factor of, of about six. So um, all of the things being equal, your, your position would probably have been reduced by, by you know, a factor of six. So you would have gone from being long 60 lots to being long 10 lots. And that's a purely automatic response. And it, that's regardless of any information the system has about what the future is going to hold. It's just that it, it, it's automatically reduced the position by a factor of six. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that, that you know, if, if we're trading with momentum or at least with uh, a high enough proportion of momentum in our system, and even my, my 50% momentum is enough to get this effect, um, when positions move against you, they are automatically closed. Um, so you you don't you know have to to worry about um, you know where your stop loss level should be or you know you know the, the kind of size of move in the market that that would lead you to, to close the position. Again, it's just an automatic natural part of of, of the of the system. Um, and uh, you know for for a long time, AHL uh, didn't employ a, a risk officer, uh, at least no one with that job title, um, because um, well. I guess one attitude was, well, risk management is everybody's job. Uh, and the other was, well, actually, the system kind of risk manages itself, to be honest with you. Um, so that that's kind of the starting point. Um, and then um, I think on top of that, you've got to, I think it's sensible to add a, some overlays. And I, I talked about one of them already, which is this idea that the the long-term um, kind of correlation of your, your system uh, returns um, may be low, but there may be times when your peak risk is is particularly high because just because your positions have lined up a particular way, and just because market correlations have, have become more unusual. Um, so for that reason, uh, I think it's definitely worth um, having this kind of overlay in place. Now, a, a debate I've actually had um, with uh, a friend of mine who works for a, a large U.S. hedge fund um, was was about this idea as to whether you should kind of completely go towards targeting a given level of risk on a day-by-day basis. In other words, saying, um, you know, our risk will always be um, annualized standard deviation 15% a year in expectation based on what our positions are at the moment. Um, so what I I've, I've, what I do is, is different, which is to say, on average, I'm, I'm shooting for a particular level, but it might be because of the strength of my forecast that I sometimes have less than that, sometimes have more than that, um, but if I have a lot more than that, um, then I'm, I'm going to be worried and kind of scale things back. Uh, I do think there's a there's a benefit from from scaling positions according to um, you know conviction of forecast. 
and I, I see strong evidence for that both in momentum and in say carry systems uh, and I, I believe that sticking to a fixed risk target um, you know you kind of lose that information uh, but that doesn't mean you should scale back when risk gets really nasty the other the other things I think about are kind of sort of pushing that risk management model and saying well what are the weaknesses of that model and how can we correct it so I, I'm a firm believer in using a simple model which you understand the shortcomings of. So I do use, um, you know, the fancy name would be a joint Gaussian model. Well, that's basically a model which assumes that a correlation, which is a linear measure of co-movement, can be used to measure co-movement. Um, we talked about that already and the shortcomings of that. Um, and also assumes that uh, asset returns um, have a normal distribution, a so-called so bell curve. Now, this is completely rubbish, right? I mean, that everyone knows that both these assumptions are wrong. Um, but, but the nice thing is that with such a simple model um, is that there's, there's nothing kind of hidden about, about what's going on inside it. It's very intuitive and un understandable and, and the shortcomings are very well known. Um, so, and what I then do is apply um, essentially uh, overlays on that model saying, okay, I know correlation is a really poor measure of co-movement. What if I stress the correlation matrix and assume that, um, you know, well, normally stocks and bonds have got a correlation of about zero or negative. What if that correlation goes really high? How does that change the, the current risk of my portfolio? Uh, similarly, um, if what if I, I sort of say, well, yeah, a bell curve normally is okay, but what if there's a tail event like we had last week? Um, what if vols go to kind of the 95th percentile of a historical range? Um, you know, if I apply that stress event, what does the portfolio risk look like then? Uh, and, and that kind of works pretty well. Um, and um, I'd say it works as well as, if not better than, a more complex methodology, which would be something like saying, um, well, you know, I've got a PhD in maths and uh, I haven't. I have <laughs> saying, you know, you, you apply, apply a kind of typical risk quantity who would say, oh, well, I have a PhD in maths and what we should do is implement a much more sophisticated risk model that has, uh, you know, high moments of the return distribution and has these things called co-skewness and kurtosis and, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it's all very complicated and nobody really understands uh, what's going on inside it uh, and these models actually tend to be not very robust to the data you put into them so if you take out the 87 crash and put it back in again I know the estimates of, of risk can, can change very dramatically um, whereas you know I, I would take a more kind of heuristic approach which is to say will my portfolio survive a hypothetical repeat of the 87 crash yes or no um, I, I, would, I think that's easier to understand and also more robust approach to risk management. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think it's uh, super interesting. One thing actually that um, I wanted your opinion about uh, before, uh, I'm sure Moritz might uh, ask you a few more questions, is just the whole concept of AI. I mean, I'm, I'm super curious to see how AI models have gone through the last two weeks because this is data that those models probably wouldn't have seen before. Um, do you have a view on on AI? Do you like it? Uh, do you hate it? Uh, neutral? Um, I mean, I think it's fairly well known that I'm I'm not a big fan of AI, um, and uh, I I kind of put my cards on the table and say, partly that's down to ignorance. Um, it's not a space that I'm I understand that well. Um, it's also partly down to the bias of having seen people use um, you know these more complicated techniques, the things like. AI machine learning, neural networks, genetic algorithms. I've seen a lot of people do some very um, kind of massive degree of overfitting using these techniques. 
and I think the real danger is that there are people most of the people I've seen using them um, do not have a good kind of robust background in sort of classical statistics that underlies them um, and they don't really have a good intuitive understanding about you know robustness and overfitting um, and so they use these models uh, and it's like giving a, a three-year-old you know a nuclear weapon um, you know it's it it's just dangerous uh, now there are people in the space who really know what they're doing uh, and are using AI uh, very intelligently um, but you know you, you go and speak to these guys and, and it's obvious that it, it's a fearsomely complicated business um, and uh, you know the, the kind of person off the street who's downloaded some kind of um, open source um, you know machine learning library and has applied it to financial data and thinks that they're going to become a, a billionaire is, is almost certainly in real trouble so um, I mean, I my kind of understanding is that a lot of the funds that are using AI are using it less in the kind of core alpha generation, the more and more specialist areas like, for example, trade execution. Um, because it's something like trade execution, um, you know, you have a lot more data, and therefore there's there's much less chance of, of overfitting. Um, you know, but but and, and uh, the, you know, I don't think there are that many, you know, big players. Uh, in our industry who are using AI in a really big way. Um, I think they're experimenting with it and they're playing with it. Um, and uh, there are certain areas of the business where it's definitely very valuable. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I it would be very, very interesting to see how the numbers come out uh, at the end of this month. I mean, we, we've talked about our own performance. I think you're going to see some really big dispersion. Um, I, I know of people who made we were making like 14% on some days last week on a single day in the space. Um, and uh, there are going to be others who are losing that kind of money. Um, you know, the, the average is probably going to be pretty close to flat, but I think you're going to see some some mat, some pretty big dispersion, uh, which which goes back to our earlier discussion about, you know, the correlation between different funds being quite high. But actually, you know, you can have weeks like last week and, and the performance can be really quite different. I fully agree. We we simply, I mean, we've mentioned that before. We don't have enough data for most of our systems if we're using daily bars, right? And like you say, Robert, if if you're doing something in the low latency space or in execution, then there's much more data that you can work with, and then maybe machine learning or AI type of techniques, they can they can be effective there. I've also said that I'm not smart enough to really comment to uh, competently on on any of that. I'm I'm not using it. But what I also want to say is, I mean, I haven't seen any track records yet. You know, we, we hear people saying, oh, I'm using uh, highly supervised machine learning techniques. I don't know what that means. I mean, to what extent is it supervised and to what extent is it not? Or it's integrated into the portfolio. Well, that's fine. But, you know, what, what role does it really play? Is it really marginal or does it play a large role? Um, so I'd like to see, and, and maybe those records exist and then I just haven't discovered them yet. But, um, I'd like to see the evidence of, uh, you know, the pure machine learning AI type of fund uh, with a couple of years under its belt and, and how it's been performing. And I'd like to contrast that to other strategies available to us that we have more ease of understanding. Yeah, I mean, and that's going to be tough because I, I would probably say that, in my opinion, perhaps three quarters of the funds saying that they're using uh, AI machine learning aren't really they're just doing the stuff that we've always done, but they're labeling it as that because they think clients will yeah. be impressed. So, um, you know, to, to actually get those figures, you're, you're really going to have to, to dive under the hood and kind of get specific strategies that are being used and, and uh, backtest them and compare them and uh, 
Yeah, that'd be quite a hard exercise to do, definitely. And, and and until then, I'd say it probably is a lot of marketing and a lot of hype. And it's one of those buzzwords together with the, you know, blockchain and all of the things that you kind of like want to mention if you are a quant fund these days. Anyway, maybe maybe final question or second to last question back to the simplest stuff that uh, that we do trend following. Um, what's your view, Robert, on trend following being potentially crowded and the returns of the strategy decaying or diminishing over time? As we've heard, I mean, you've mentioned the name Winton. Winton has been publicly out saying that, that they expect trend following returns to be weaker going forward than they have been in the past. Would you agree with that or is it impossible to tell, too early to tell? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's definitely too early to tell. Um... Because because we need a lot of data to fit our strategies, because they, they only exist at the kind of bare threshold of statistical significance, um, you know, a few years of poor performance is certainly not enough to to kind of kind of prove one way or the other, uh, or at least prove with some kind of 90, 95% confidence interval um, that the performance really, you know, going forward is going to be much lower or, or negative. Um, there's different ways of looking at this. One way is to say, well, where where do the returns come from? Um, it, I, I'm I'm in sort of the the kind of behavioural finance camp. I think it's sort of a psychological bias that people just just don't like um, the style of trading where they're um, taking small losses and holding on for bigger gains. People people like taking profits. Um, the other thing to look at is you know what's the AUM in the um, sort of trend following space versus the total AUM out there um, and uh, you know that number fluctuates over time but but it's it, I'd say it's probably maybe 10% at most of kind of actively managed money probably less um, now that doesn't mean to say that there are markets where you know a bit much more than 10% of the volume is being done by by trend followers um, Although, actually, let me be a bit more pedantic. Because we trade quite slowly, um, it's quite likely there are markets out there where, you know, a reasonable percentage of the positions are being held, the open positions are being held by trend followers. Um, but because we're trading quite slowly, that, that we're probably still quite a small fraction of the volume, I would say. Um, now, that doesn't mean to say that there will be times when um, a particular trade gets crowded, particular position gets crowded, um, and with a lot of people who are all doing a similar kind of thing. Um, I mean, and, and, and I think one of the more interesting concerns is, is the, the growth of the, the risk parity industry, because risk parity funds, when it comes to a shock that causes you to exit your position, look an awful lot like trend followers. Um, because, because the as we discussed earlier, the, the thing that gets you out of your position quicker is the volatility scaling, not necessarily the momentum filter. Um, so, you know, a, a big risk parity fund that doesn't use momentum, um, if there's a vol shock, they will be reducing their positions and they'll be doing so in a way that looks very much like, the, you know, the CTAs and you, you wouldn't be able to distinguish between them on the sort of trade level data. Um, and th there are, of course, plenty of risk parity funds who are using momentum, usually slower, but, but momentum filters um, to, you know, on, on, as a tactical overlay on, on top of that long ending position. So, there will always be times when you know there's a market and there's a rush for the exit and it crashes and people will blame it on on trend followers, um, but but I you know and I don't think that the size of the industry now and I think 
realistically in the future. I mean, people just do not like this strategy, right? They, they just they, That's a fact. they just don't like it. I mean, <laughs> it, it's kind of the, the the blessing and the curse of the industry, right? The 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 curse is that people just don't like it, which means it's really hard to sell. Um, you know, it doesn't have a kind of blockbuster shark ratio. Um, it it does it, it it may deliver you know quote unquote crisis alpha, but but not always. Um, it's it's uh, really hard to tell a compelling story about it. Um, you know, compared to say, telling a story about kind of a, a you know an exciting human stock picker who 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 really has a massive expert on on this particular thing. You can tell a great marketing story about that. It's much harder to tell a great marketing story about about a bunch of guys sitting in front of computer, computers playing with you know programming languages. Um, but the, the blessing for that is that the industry will probably never get big enough that that the crowding would would really be potentially a, a serious issue. And the other the other aspect, just to finish, is that crowding means something quite different in um, momentum than it does in a a mean reversion relative value or or, or carry based strategy. So when you get crowding in that kind of strategy, you get um, the effect of um, value compression. So if if a whole bunch of investors buy, you know, stocks that have got a you know a nice uh, price to book ratio, then price to book ratios will get compressed, and the returns available from that strategy will reduce. Um, and um, you know th- that won't necessarily happen with momentum. With momentum, if a lot of people pile into the same trade, it becomes self-reinforcing, and actually the returns from the trade increase. Of course, then you still have the problem that everyone could rush for the exit at the same time. But that's equally a problem with, you know, with the value-based trades. And importantly, another important difference is that those value-based trades tend to have higher leverage um, because their they're relative value um, in many cases in the equity space um, and uh, in, in, the, in the, say, FX carry space, when those yields get compressed, um, then the you know, volatility tends to fall. You get much higher leverage. Um, so the, the the kind of effect of the rush to the X's is much more pronounced uh, in those style of trades than it than it is in momentum. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'm ever going to see enough evidence one way or the other that the momentum is is working or not working. Um, I kind of justify to myself that it that it has this um, psychological underpinning. I never I don't really know whether that's true or not. If you know, I guess we'll never know. Um, but but I like. I like the characteristics of the strategy. I like the. Um, I, I don't believe it will necessarily deliver crisis alpha, but I, I do believe that that in the long run it will be uncorrelated. Um, it, and I like the fact that it, as I've already said, it's easy to risk manage, um, and the kind of the way that the portfolios are constructed, with things like the volatility scaling, the diversification, you know, theoretically. Um, that that all makes sense to me, and and uh, you know that there's plenty of evidence that all of these things individually kind of make sense. Um, so we, actually, even if momentum doesn't work that well, the fact that you've got a portfolio that's diversified and has got volatility scaling will actually generate pretty decent returns because it is still going to be picking up on on the risk premium from the different assets, and and doing so in a way that with the risk management uh, makes sense. I mean, I love everything you said about that, uh, Rob. And I would add to that, the other thing I really love about the strategy is that it's super liquid, even though, of course, we all know that private equity guys still have a ball right now because they don't necessarily have to mark to market their positions for the last uh, few days. So it looks pretty stable. Um, But we all know that uh, 
not being able to get out of your positions uh, when you want is 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 devastating. So uh, yeah, I mean, liquidity is, is another great thing. And actually, while you were talking about you know the fact that it's so difficult, people don't like uh, the strategy, even though it's good for them. It reminded me about when my kids were were small and uh, you know you had to give them their medicine or whatever it is and they know it tastes awful so they don't want to take it but on the other hand we all know that you know it's the best thing for them anyways i mean can i just quickly on on the liquidity point actually because one of the things we saw in 2008 was actually cta did very well and then we were faced with a wave of redemptions because it was one of the few places where people could could you know get access to to you know know, we were offering funds with daily liquidity we weren't, we weren't putting down gates or anything and people were like, great, this is the only place I can get cash. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see, um, you know, wh- whether we get um, a similar thing happening this time around as well. That's right. Anything else on your mind, Moritz? Uh, otherwise, I just want to run through maybe um, where we stand. Yeah, it's probably probably a good time to uh, to run through the markets and uh, and, and, and close this up. Th- this, this yeah, has been we're going to twist yeah. Rob's arm to come back soon. But anyways, let me just quickly run through, uh, you know, where we stand as a Thursday evening. I actually think Friday was a, another big day. Friday, lots of moves in the market. So I have a feeling that from a CTA industry point of view, it's going to be a mixed day. Some people did well. Some people lost a little bit of money. Um, but so the the B top fifty index, which is the twenty largest CTAs open to new investors, is down uh, slightly this month, one point nine three percent and down about 3% for the year so far as of Thursday. The Sokjian CTA index is down about 40 bips for the month uh, and down about 1.1% for the year. Then comes the trend followers uh, as of Thursday. They were up uh, just slightly less than 1% for the month and up 1.37% for the year. The Sokjian short-term traders index as expected doing well up 1.21% for the month and up 448 for the year. And the Bridge Alternatives uh, Index uh, doing well, very strong uh, this month, up 3.46% uh, for the month of March and up 2.73% for the year. Um, for those who um, are curious about, um, you know, Rob's books, uh, let me just throw in there that they are in my ultimate guide of the best investment books you can uh, you can read. So if you go to toptradersonplug.com, there's a little... Um, banner in the top where you can download for free this guide and you'll find uh, Rob's books in there. They are definitely uh, really good reads and uh, you should uh, you should go and, and get them and find any other information about uh, Rob that you can listen to. Um, you know, as you can tell from our conversation today, there is a wealth of knowledge and experience uh, that we can all benefit from. Um, Moritz, anything else uh, from your side? Uh, and Rob, anything else that you want to bring up that we uh, forgot to uh, to ask you about, so to speak? No, but thanks very much for being on with us uh, today, Robert. That was great. Yeah, no, it's been a very interesting discussion. And um, yeah, I guess the, the, the main thing I've been saying a lot on Twitter is that um, the nice thing about having a system um, is that when these things happen, you, you have a plan in place and you, and you know what to do. Um, otherwise, you know, you have this kind of constant anguish about, should I sell anything? Should I sell everything? You know, or is this the seller finished? I start now trying to find the bottom, you know, sh- what, 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 what shall I do? It's, 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 uh, it's very, very stressful in, in that situation, um, trying to decide what to do. Um, and, um, you know, 
although this system may not end up doing as well as if as as, as my decisions you know hypothetical decisions could have been um you know i know that in the long run um it's it's definitely a a more relaxed way of uh, of, of managing your money than than uh, than than the other way and and i you know Moritz said earlier he wasn't intelligent enough to uh to understand the ai stuff and I, i'm in that camp too and I, I definitely know that i'm i'm not a good enough discretionary trader that, that i can um kind of live through last week and, and make good decisions uh, i would have probably either been paralyzed or or just um you know done too much and and uh probably ended up in a, in a much worse place than, than even buy and hold so so yeah it's uh it's it's even if trend following is not your thing i think having any kind of system or plan in place even if it's just literally buy and hold and do nothing um is, is better than than the alternative for, for pretty much everybody yeah and no, i couldn't agree more having a uh, having a plan having a map uh, when you travel also when you do your investment journey is 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 super important and and that's how you uh, survive and thrive in the long run um now just uh, a, a a quick word at the end i mean uh, as usual if you feel that you uh, got any value from our conversation today we certainly wouldn't mind if you would share this episode and maybe go to itunes and leave a rating and review because it really does help other investors discover uh, our little podcast. From Rob, Mortz, and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review, and be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.